Hey there, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best brewers and get their tips, tricks, and secrets and deliver them straight to you as if though you're brewing with them. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out. Well, there you go. And on, on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub. We're going to handle some feedback. We've got some, uh, well, you know, there's a, this has been a busy week, actually, in the beer world. So we got a lot of things to talk about in the pub. Uh, then we're going to go over to the library for a brief visit down to Australia. Talk some stuff in the brewery about green hops, because, hey, those are just around the corner. And then, well... We're flying to South America and recapping some of the day's experiences in Chile, because, man, you just got back. Yeah, I did, man, and I promise that when we fly to South America, it won't take 17 hours like it took when I went last week. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the magic of the internet. That's right. So, uh, stick around. We got a whole lot of beery stuff to talk about. Uh, We'll be right back after we hear a little bit from some of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by... The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Okay, welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope that you enjoyed our little theme song there and some advertisements that help pay for it. Make sure you tell our sponsors that you found them via us. A couple of announcements real quick before we get into the middle of the show. One, there's a brand new episode of The Brew Files that came out last week, episode 15, 15, On the Vine with Dave Lustig, part two. It's our second part of exploring exactly how you make home wine and why Dave actually thinks that home brewers are better winemakers than winemakers are. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click on the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... 
And for the second half of the year, our charity comes from a suggestion from a listener, homebrewer, and incredible snack stick maker, Paul Fowler, who suggested Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, which is helping to fund the care and treatment of pediatric cancer. So uh, add, add a few points to your karma score. Uh, make a contribution via Patreon at our website, experimentalbrew.com, and help out all those kids because, you know... Kids with cancer, come on. How can you not want to help out? Yeah, cancer sucks. Cancer sucks, no doubt about it. Hey, should we get into some feedback? Let's do. Although, you know, as an audio engineer, I hate that word, but we'll use it anyway. So uh, our feedback starts off with some uh, people who wrote in about our story about Plowshare closing in in Nebraska. Uh, Run that down, would you? Yeah, so if you don't remember from the last episode, one of my good friends, Matt Stinchfield, had a brewery called Plowshare Brewing Company in Lincoln, Nebraska. And just literally this month announced that they were closing after three years in business for a lot of complicated reasons. And one of the things that we talked about on the show was, well, whether or not you guys wanted us to you know, talk about things like that or talk about or talk with people about things like that. And by far and away, overwhelmingly, the answers that we got, maybe this is self-serving feedback, but the answers that we got from people were, yes, uh, yes, please cover this. We had a number of people going, hey, look, you know, I'm thinking about going pro and I would greatly benefit from learning what some of the pitfalls are from somebody who fell into them. So we will look at uh, how we can set that sort of stuff up and make sure that you're all still having a good time while we're talking about well what it means to close. Yeah, it, it's an important topic because so many people are so enthusiastic about opening breweries that they don't even uh, sometimes stop to think about the other side of that. So uh, we just want to give you guys all the information you can use to make your own informed decisions. Speaking of informed decisions, we got a message from Flyin' Brian J via Twitter that says, Canning sounds an awful lot more difficult than bottling and more difficult to get the vessels to package in. No price works for me. And I got to tell you, Brian, that's kind of where I'm at, too. Canning sounds like a, a, a nifty idea, but then it's just way too much work for me. Uh, but Drew, you've done it. What, what's your uh, reply to Brian? Oh no, I I totally get it, and I'm I will totally admit that I'm a sucker for gear and I'm a sucker for things like this. And it's unique, and that's part of the reason why I'm pursuing it. It's not it's not because I feel like I'm saving any time. I'm just having fun doing it, and after all, that's what it's about. We had another piece of feedback also come in on the on this particular topic from uh, Dave Chrisman from Seattle, who said. Uh, I just wanted to write in for another perspective on Drew's question about what price point slash interest I would have in a canning machine for my homebrew. My response is there is no price point at which I would be interested in a canning machine. And it's not because I don't think there would ever be a low enough price point to interest me, though that is one issue, or because I have an irrational dislike of canned beer. In fact, I would prefer more beer to be canned. The reason I will never be interested in canning my homebrew comes down to a single question. Can you reuse a can? So it goes on as relatively new, a new brewer type budget. Uh, and he says, I'm not interested in canning at all, even if a canning machine was at the same price as a bottle capper, because the equipment used in packaging is not the issue for me. It's the package itself. With bottles, once they are empty, you can reuse them. And while they can break, and while you could buy a new case for every batch, once you have bottles, you always have them. Even though I don't keg yet, the same logic applies to any kegging system. The same does not apply to cans. Unless I can pry off the lids, weld them shut, and reuse them, I don't see any <laughs> just for in cans for the homebrewer. So in conclusion, I will never be interested in canning my homebrew, not due to equipment price, but due to the fact that it would be an additional expense every time I brewed that I could easily be avoided by bottling instead. 
That said, my response is predicted on the inability to reuse cans. If they ever came about a reusable can, I'd have to reevaluate my stance. I mean, that makes that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense to me because it's like I can see the canning for somebody who has the money to afford the canner and just likes geeking out, kind of like you. Uh, I can see canning with the canner as a uh, maybe like a club purchase so that people can use it to can occasional batches. But, you know, I guess I just can't see it as a thing that you're going to be using for every batch. It's more of a, a special situation kind of thing. Uh, you're going rafting on the river or going camping and you want to take some beer along and put it in cans. So, mm-hmm. y- you know, uh, that I can, I can see it for that kind of thing. For everyday use, I've got to agree, man. It just doesn't seem real practical. Oh, yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, at least for me, this is, this is still a special thing. I you know, go can off a couple, a uh, couple cans of some of the beers I want to save. I uh, truthfully, I mean, they, they're they're really nice to use that way. Like I, the beer that we canned last year for the Falcons, the saison uh, Dumai or the saison right. Vigola. Yeah, that's I still have a couple cans of that, and it's still sitting in my freezer. And yeah, I know they've bounced around in the freezer a couple times and stayed sturdy. And I just cracked open a couple the other day, and they're still tasting great. So yay. <laughs> Yay, indeed. And I guess our last piece of feedback is about a subject near and dear to my heart, huh? <laughs> uh-huh. You want to read it? Oh, sure. I'll, I, I'll read. I thought I was going to let you read this one, but I'll I, read I, it. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to mouth these words. Yeah, right. So, uh, Jake Freshour says via Facebook. Bought my first ukulele this week while on vacation in Kauai. I listened to the podcast on the flight over, so maybe I was subconsciously inspired by Denny. There's going to be a 2018 homebrew con ukulele meetup in Portland, right? Right on, Jake. Uh, we'll clear that convention center out within seconds. No problem. Um, <laughs> you know, this is not the first time I've heard of uh, somebody going out and buying a ukulele after after listening to the show. And uh, I, I, it's like, I don't know, I'm trying not to send out any go get a ukulele vibes, but maybe it happens. But I would like to propose that if you have a ukulele, uh, do bring it to HomebrewCon in Portland next year. We will get together and see how many people we can get to play the beer song on the ukulele at one time. It'll be like a Guinness World Record, except that our Guinness will be more like a homebrew world record. Yeah. See, okay, two things. Yes. One, if we ever lose this cultural war, you're going to be up for war crimes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and two... I find it hysterical that the man who objects to karaoke in all forms is advocating for a ukulele meetup. Well, you know what? I My feeling is that this is going to be a whole heck of a lot better than karaoke. And the real advantage is it's going to be over a lot more quickly than the karaoke was. All right. I, I, I disagree with you about the better part. What about you, listener? Is, is a ukulele meetup a better thing than a karaoke meetup? Better for the eardrums? Worse for the eardrums? Which one is the larger cultural war crime? Let us know. Keep in mind that karaoke goes on for hours and hours, and a ukulele meetup will be over in less than a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure which will be more out of tune. After some of the karaoke I heard in Minneapolis at the last conference, I got to tell you that uh, the uke meeting won't be any worse than the karaoke. Hmm. I'm not certain I agree, but we'll leave that to the listeners to decide. I guess it's time maybe now we uh, wander over to the pub and have a beer, huh? Oh, yeah, I think so. Okay, stick around. We're going to play some music here from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back sitting in the pub. 
Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. We're back. We're sitting in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA. We're having a couple beers, and uh, what are you drinking this morning, Drew? Well, because it's L.A. and it's the summer and it's hotter than hell right now, I, uh, I decided I was going to go with a can of beer that I picked up this past weekend from Mumford Brewing in, in downtown L.A., not to be confused with the band Mumford & Sons, right. but Mumford Brewing. And uh, they have a Pilsner that they dry hop that they call So Hot Right Now. And mm. you know what? It's tasty. Wow. That sounds great. Dry hopped with what kind of hops, man? You know, I, uh, I, I didn't remember, and they didn't write it on the can, but I think it was a noble variety. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, and I guess that was my main uh, question. Was it noble, or did they go uh, fruity, juicy... Citrus now, American. Now they save the fruity juicy for all their uh, for all the other beers. And this was, by the way, also an interesting trip because I tried all their beers and they had four four IPAs on tap, which is about you know standard fare these days. Mm-hmm. Of the four, three of them were your hazy New England style IPA, and one was a classical West Coast IPA. And I have to admit, I really dug the, the classical West Coast IPA. Yeah. Well, you know what? Speaking of that. That's what I'm drinking, too, is a classic West Coast, Northwest-style IPA, except the uh, catch is this one comes from Chile. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot more about the Tubinger Brewery when we talk more about Chile later, but uh, I had the honor and pleasure of meeting the owner and founder of Tubinger, Chris Flaskamp, and he gave me a couple beers to bring home, one of which was his Hoppiness IPA. It's a six uh, percent IPA. It's made with crystal malt in it, which I know is like not in vogue for a lot of West Coast IPAs these days. But it's got a healthy dose of Columbus, Chinook, Cascade, and Citra hops, and it is a fantastic IPA. Uh, this IPA from Chile is the equal of some of the best American IPAs I've had, despite their distance from uh, the hop crops. Uh, Chris was able to get just a great, great hop presence in it. You open the beer, and the first thing you get is the fruitiness from the citra, which always worries me a bit because I'm not a huge fan of citra hops. But the use of the Columbus, Chinook, and Cascade in it really, really balances out the fruitiness from the citra. The, uh, the crystal malt gives it some body and just that touch of toastiness. An absolutely delicious IPA, and I wish I would have been able to fit more than one bottle into my suitcase. Yeah, you should have been able to fit some in there for me, buddy, but you didn't. 
Well, man, I guess we'll just either have to make another trip to Chile or uh, wait for Chris to come up and visit us. There you go. Yeah. Chris, bring beer. <laughs> you know, knowing Chris, he will bring beer. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we hopped in his pickup truck to head out to the brewery, and I heard this uh, clank, clank, clank coming from the back seat and look back there, and there's like beer bottles all over the floor in the back. And uh, believe me, they were full. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. <laughs> So, right. so you have uh, you have some info about a celebrity brewery, huh? Yeah. So right after we released the last episode, and as Denny was winging his way to Chile, the, <laughs> there became like uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but like one of the most cringeworthy sort of Instagram new media gushing article type things about Barrel and Sons Brewery. Uh, up in Napa, California. And these guys got a glowing, glowing write-up in Forbes. And it's three dudes. Uh, Elliot Taylor, son of a restaurateur. Carlo Mondavi, who is, you know, that Mondavi. And <laughs> J- Jacob Bush, of those Bushes. And all talking about how they were uh, opening up a brewery and they'd looked around and realized that America didn't have any more... Uh, any more loggers that were American owned and that, that they they really need to step in and fill this niche. And wait, wait, just wait, wait. Stuff what in this article. I mean, one. What about Yingling? Uh, yep, that's the first one everybody <laughs> brings up. Yeah. Yeah, Yingling. Uh, there's a bunch of American pilsners and loggers that are American owned. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that was the, the beer cringy side of it. Well, they, uh, and they also talked about how they, they were going to. Lagered this beer for an extended period of time. It was going to be one of the longest lagered uh, beers on the market at 30 days. Uh, they're, they had binders full of in, uh, special ingredients and steps to, to make this happen. And that they're, they're planning on using their, their names and their power to be able to bring this beer back to the market. And that was bad enough. I mean, that was like every cringe-inducing, yeah. you know, wankery type thing that happens about, you know, breweries opening up uh, by people who don't have much of an idea about breweries. But then it got into the, I almost want to say it was a performance piece by the writer of the Forbes article because <laughs> I started talking about how how they met and, you know, like, oh, yes, you know, we met each other at the bar and we were both wearing the exact same brand of ostrich boots and that's when we knew we'd be best friends. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So, uh, Barrel and Sons Brewing Company out of Napa, California. Their Instagram feed is everything that, if you're an old, like Denny and I are, make you want to just slap your face in horror. But go find the, uh, the Forbes article. We'll, actually, we'll include a link to the Forbes article in there if you haven't read it. It is, like I said, I'm not entirely certain it's not a very subtle hit piece on this whole thing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, give them enough rope to hang themselves by their own petard, right? Yeah, that's that's hoist on your own petard. Yes, hoist. Yes, yeah. Give them enough rope to, to hoist themselves on their own petard, um, because we, yeah, good lord, yeah, that's right, man. It, it, I think I think cringeworthy is the right description there. Oh yeah. So now we go from cringeworthy to legality issues, and getting into the world of. What most people, I think, actually uh, expect out of homebrewers, which is an arrest that happened in Peru, not Peru, South America, Peru, Indiana. <laughs> I where, was going to say, wait a minute, I was just down in that direction. Yeah, 
No, well, and yeah, I read this while you were in Chile, so I got confused for a moment. But basically, two dudes, uh, Kevin Kaufman and Brian Blackman, were arrested in uh, Peru because they were running an illegal winery out of their uh, out of their apartment, and they were selling three bottles of wine for twenty dollars. And they got busted. Uh, they had like over two hundred fifty bottles with uh, homemade beverages in them, four hundred fifty empty bottles. $1,500 in cash, some meth, and other drug paraphernalia. Oh, there's, the, there's the problem. But the, I, well, I think it's all the problem because they yeah. were selling the the stuff. They had things with handwritten notes on the bottles with the alcohol content and everything else. And a big sign that says, Welcome to the Slapberry Winery. And we're turning around <laughs> and selling their booze. Wow. Uh. And this is, by the way, in Indiana. Uh, Indiana yeah. has some of the the most screwy laws out there about uh, booze. Uh, Indiana is one of those states where you still can't buy anything on Sunday, right? So you know, and you know, people, you may disagree with the laws like that. You may find them stupid, ridiculous, uh, whatever. You may wonder why they're there. You may hate the government for them, but let's face it, they are there. They get enforced, and you can lose your ass. So, well, just don't do that kind of stuff. Well, and I was going to say, this is the first time I, I can actually recall ever hearing about homebrewers, or in this case, home winemakers, being busted. Because, you know, everybody's like, oh, nobody's going to bust you for selling your booze. Well, turns out, I think if you piss off your neighbors, they will. Yeah, and, and you know, it could very well be, too, that these guys uh, were discovered making wine in the course of a meth investigation or something like that. So, you know, who knows what the real impetus behind the whole thing was. Oh, oh! The cops, the cops claim it was all about the winemaking operation. Okay, the well, meth was incidental. Yeah, the meth was incidental. <laughs> Let's just and, and and there's your new band name, Incidental Meth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So let's just get this straight right now, people. Please obey the alcohol laws. Don't put yourself in jeopardy of losing everything you own and ending up in prison for making a few hundred bucks uh, selling illegal booze. Uh, just it ain't worth it. Yeah, well, so long, Slapberry Winery. That's right. I hope that you had a good run. Well, now that we've uh, talked about why it's good to be good, uh, let's uh, talk about another brewery acquisition, kind of. Uh, Lagunitas bought into Shorts Brewing, and uh, a lot of people are saying that's kind of like Heineken buying into Shorts Brewing, since Heineken owns Lagunitas now. Uh, you got any clarification on that whole thing? Yeah, well, one... It's not like Heineken buying uh, shorts. It is Heineken buying shorts. Now, uh, now okay. I was trying to be nice about it, you know? Well, yeah. Okay, but ostensibly, uh, Lush, which is Lagunitas U.S. Holdings, which also owns part of Moonlight Brewing Company, and there's one other that I'm forgetting right now. Uh, they actually have a couple of breweries that they've invested in. But Lush, which is the owner, uh, technically, of Lagunitas, which is 100% and owned by Heineken, uh, bought 19.99% of shorts. Now, this is interesting because the shorts guys were out there and they were talking about it on you know social media and everywhere else. And you know, a lot of reaction as you would imagine, uh, good and bad. You know, a lot of the same sort of thing that we see in other acquisitions where, you know, a congratulations abound. What's interesting is why 19.99, and it turns out that that was a number that they could agree to with their bank. Uh, something about their oh. loans. At least the way that it's sold. Now, this has an interesting side effect, which is that at 19.99% ownership, 
they still qualify for the Brewers Association Independent Beer Seal, which is sort of chitin-rubby. You know, that's just the way rules work, isn't it? Oh, yeah. But, I mean, it, to me, it's interesting just because, okay, that points out sort of a flaw, but at the same time, it is part of the system and how everything works. So, to me, it's interesting just because, I mean, yeah, it falls into that weird nebulous gray spot on the, on the whole thing. But you look at what the shorts folks were saying, and it's the exact same rhetoric that we see everywhere. You know, it's like, oh, this is good for us because, you know, increased distribution and increased access to capital because I guess they were basically sort of slammed up against the wall. They say, oh, you know, we have like, I think they said they have like 20% of their daily market capacity or something uh, in reserve. So they literally have like two days worth of beer on hand. So, I mean, mean, they they were up against, or they are up against a sort of, tight space that they're in. But of course, this also begs the question. I mean, they're pretty much Michigan only uh, with some limited distribution outside of Michigan. And they're very proud about uh, flying the Michigan made Michigan only type uh, flag. And this starts to get into that weird sticky wicket of what does it mean when you got big foreign investment and you're uh, waving the local banner? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and, and it, it's like you were saying, as long as they're under 25%, they still meet the BA's definition of an independent brewery. Um, and, you know, you gotta, you got to make the line somewhere. So I guess 25% is as good as anything. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it is a bit strange, uh, I, I'll try not to put any other connotations on it, that someone who uh, wants to tout themselves as being locally owned then sells part of the brewery to a foreign company. Yep. Well, and uh, to me, I think the more interesting part about it is, you know, I mean, Shorts, uh, Shorts is a, you get a lot of people who dismiss Shorts as sort of a stunt brewery. You know, they make apparently a couple of IPAs, but they're also very famous for sort of their very culinary inspired type beers. Like which a clam chowder saison. Exactly. Which, I mean, of course, I don't have any problems with, but that, that's very much their reputation. And, but what I do think is interesting about the whole thing is you go and you look at the the way it, it, they set up the announcement yesterday and the way they've set up this this investment all through Lush, nothing in any of the official stuff ever said anything word one about Heineken. Right. And when asked about it on social media, the um, Scott from Shorts basically said, oh, well, we've never talked with anybody from Heineken. You know, we've only been dealing with Lagunitas. And it's like... Yeah, but still Heineken. But, but yeah, <laughs> really. Uh, very, very interesting. Uh, it, it's well, almost as if they're trying to deny reality. Well, and I saw one funny social media response that, that really sort of drove home the point to me was, do you think the folks at ABI and the high end wish they had thought about this idea beforehand and had set up Goose Island to go buy all these other breweries? That's true. Uh, maybe kind of disguise what was going on and, uh, and couch it in a kinder framework. Although it's like uh, like we say, when you look more closely, it it isn't what it appears to be. No. Well, and of course, that wasn't the only beer acquisition news or brewery acquisition news or brewery investment news. I, I this next one is kind of puzzling to me because it's a little yeah squidgy. Yeah. So at the same time that Lagunitas announced and Schwartz announced the, the investment, Brooklyn Brewing, 21st Amendment, and Funkworks all announced a sort of a investment and sales and distribution partnership. Uh, so 
this one's this one's a little different, right? Because this is this isn't like, hey, we're buying the brewery. What it apparently looks like, and uh, I'm no financial wizard or even a business wizard on this one, is it looks like the three breweries have agreed to set up sort of a joint marketing and sales operation. So kind of like what uh, yeah. Miller Coors and uh, uh, Miller Coors did here in the U.S. Right, and yeah. All about trying to get a unified, a unified approach so that they can, you know, sort of leverage that sort of power and leverage their sort of combined strengths into distribution chains in places that they aren't necessarily right. That's one thing, and I thought that was kind of interesting because it's a different take on things. And of course, then there's the kicker behind it, which is sort of to cement the deal and sort of put blood on uh, blood into the whole thing. Brooklyn Brewing uh, has invested an undisclosed amount of money into each of those breweries, into 21st Amendment and Funkworks. And, of course, Brooklyn Brewery is 24.5% owned by Kirin in Japan, which means that they still fall into the uh, Brewers Association's definition of an independent brewery, even though they have uh, a fair amount of money coming in from uh, an outside foreign megabrewery. Yep. And, of course, uh, Kieran, Kieran, at least I'll give them credit, they, they do seem to be rather hands-off with their breweries. I mean, they do own, say, uh, Unibrew, for instance. Uh-huh. Right. And uh, so they at least seem to be a good tenant. It's kind of like how uh, I think a lot of people view uh, uh, Duval Morgat. Uh, like, right. yeah, they're foreign, but they, they, do a, they do a pretty decent job of keeping their hands out of the pie. So, but these two deals, to me, point out some interesting changes that are happening here, right? Because... You know, with some of the news that that we've been seeing, where people are like, "There's that one hyperbolic study that's going around about oh, millennials are abandoning beer in favor of wine and spirits." And it's like, uh, well, no, they're abandoning cra- uh, mega beer and going hyper local. But you know, in light of that, and some of the stuff that we've seen about hop contracts, uh, for instance, right. uh, there was a what was that forty seven hops? Yeah, right. Yeah, people uh, breweries walking away from their hop contracts. Uh, yeah, some, yeah. some of it because they could get a better price someplace else than their contract was, or some because you know maybe falling demand for certain hops or certain beers. Well, we're seeing some real changes in in the brewing industry. Uh, you know. I don't think that uh, we're getting to the bubble bursting like it was in the 90s, but we're definitely seeing a leveling off of some of the activity and uh, the explosive growth that we've seen in the past. And we've been seeing a lot of a lot of these mergers and cross-marketing deals uh, that kind of like are changing the whole face from what it was about 10 years ago, right? There was another article recently about how New Belgium... You know, once kind of the darlings of the craft beer world that were really struggling, we're getting to a point where I think really more and more we're seeing what we had talked about before about the sort of the German model, where the people who have taken on these sort of expansion goals, like, hey, look, we want to be a, we want to be in more states than just our local area. We want to be, you know, broader. We want to have cans. We want to have everything. I think they're now getting pushed up against the wall where they need capital. And mm-hmm. this... This then makes it, uh, well, I guess it makes me wonder, at what point in time is expansion enough, right? You know, how, how big does your brewery have to be? And at what point in time does your brewery hit a certain sort of brick wall where now you are trapped in one of these curves where you're required to grow? Yeah, I mean, well, and let's face it, uh, for most business, the whole concept is that you keep growing, you know, you keep growing, you keep growing. Now, the brewery business, 
there there are two sides. You have the people who view it strictly as a business and want to do that continued expansion, that continued growth, feed the shareholders, uh, you know. And then you have the people who view it simply as uh, an artisanal experience, and you have to uh, give them a lot of credit for making great beer and having that attitude. But you also have to wonder how long they can survive like that. So it's like there's there's two different business models out there in the brewing world, it appears. And it'll be curious to see if either one is, you know, sustainable over the long term or if it needs to be a hybrid of them. Yeah. Well, and as always, you know, we're looking for your feedback on this sort of stuff because, I mean, this is a, a confusing world. And, and, of course, the other reaction I've seen is from people going, Oh, well, you know, it's just now becoming craft beer versus ABI. If you get bought, bought out by anybody else, it's okay. Is that okay to you? Is, is this really an ABI versus us type of war? Or do these deals in general bother you? Where do you draw the line? Or I know there's a big contingent of people out there who are like, it doesn't matter to me. I just want the beer, which is fine. Uh, so let us know what you think about this or any other story that we've covered today. You can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. And especially if you're one of our listeners that uh, that owns or runs a commercial brewery, let us know what you think of the various business models uh, and how, how you visualize your own brewery fitting into this whole thing. So, having said all that, having given our opinions and asked for yours, we're going to head on over to the library and uh, we're going to talk about a speech that Charlie Bamforth gave at the Craft Brewers Conference in Adelaide, Australia. So, stick around. We'll be right back. Y-Yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over 30 years and continues to provide homebrewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. The third quarter private collection emulates the rich traditions and characteristics of Belgian-style beers from Flanders to Florinville. 3739 Flanders Gold Nail, 3789 Trappist-style blend, and 3822 Belgian Dark Ale are worthy choices for creating the diverse styles of Belgium this summer. And don't forget, you can win all of the Y-East summer seasonal yeasts, along with swag from Experimental Brewing and Y-East. See experimentalbrew.com for contest rules. Contest closes July 31st, 2017. We're back, and we have made it to the library, and you've heard us talk about the library before. We have comfy chairs here. We have books. We have a fireplace. Uh, we're getting out our pipes to be erudite or whatever, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, an interesting talk that Charlie Bamforth just gave at the Craft Brewers Conference in Adelaide, Australia. Why don't you kind of give an overview, Drew? Yeah, so Charlie was down there, and he was the keynote speaker, and, well, his keynote went, uh, shall we say, digressive, but I thought it had a, I thought it had a couple of really great points in it, and uh, just to summarize what they are, uh, one, he talked about, you know, if you're going to do something, 
that you need to be consistent about it, right? So, you know, we've heard a lot of people harping on the quality aspect of things, right? You know, you got to be quality, you got to be quality. And Charlie did uh, harp on that too, He's, uh, but he harped on it from, uh, not surprisingly, from a guy who is responsible for the UC Davis brewing program, uh, harped on the idea that uh, breweries need to get their butts together and get their acts together and get people who are trained because to him, that's what craft is. You know, when people talk about something that's craft, he he views it as a point of view of these are trained people, trained uh, craftsmen. Uh, I think he used the analogy of you wouldn't just go and hire anybody off the street to go do the electrical work in your house. You'd want a trained electrician. So that was one thing. But then brought it around to the idea of consistency. So now we've talked a lot about quality and there's a lot of stuff out there about you know doing quality work and you know, improving the quality of your local brewery otherwise won't survive. And stop giving craft beer a bad name. But one of the things that he harped on that I thought was interesting was the idea of that consistency where he he looked at everybody's favorite thing to either love or hate right now, which we've talked about multiple times on the show, the New England IPA, the hazy IPA. And he said that well, – I'm trying to remember. He, what was he – he, oh, yeah. He, he talked about how when he trains people – to have a starch haze in the in the beer, uh, that is crazy. Uh, crazy. He says, uh, uh, "I teach my students that if you've got a starch haze, you're a blithering idiot." And now there are these people who are putting it in. <laughs> but what he said was, "That's fine. If that's what people want, if that's what people are buying, which they obviously are right now in droves, then strive to get it in there and strive to keep it in there." So his, his point was, you can't have a beer that looks like chicken soup one day which is what the market's wanting right now. And the next day I had to have it be clear because now suddenly the user experience, the beer drinkers experience is mixed and bad. So stop with that. And he said, that's actually a big lesson that, that people can learn from, you know, the big brewers, they can learn from the big brewers that, you know, you can make something consistent and have the same experience. And that's what the Anheuser-Busch's of the world, uh, excel in. He also said that he would, uh, he would also remind people that they need to actually take care of their brewers, and I think this goes to the point that we talked about a couple of episodes back where brewers are starting to up and leave breweries that they've become associated with because they don't have any sort of ownership stakes or they don't have, you know, sort of a reinforcement as to why they're there. And Charlie actually said, you know, look, when he first started with uh, Bass Brewing in uh, in Britain before he ever went to become a professor, it was drummed into him. They had to treat everybody as if though they were uh, – you know, that they were important to the whole machine because they were. And if you treat them as if they were important, then the beer would be better for it. Yeah, and I, I very much agree with that. I don't see how you can possibly disagree. No, no matter what kind of job you have, you need to be treated as if you're important to the entire process in order to make you feel like you want you want to do a good job. Uh, I, I think that that is a, a really great, great concept. One thing on the consistency thing, I get where he's coming from. Yeah, but at the same time, right. uh, at least for me, yeah, you know, and of course this is me speaking as a as a dedicated nuevo file. Um, I find sometimes the inconsistency is actually the charming thing, right? You know, I like the fact that the beer experience is going to be different every time I have it. Um, but at the same time, I expect it to be consistently good. Yeah, and I I, I ask for a little bit more. I want if I buy a beer, I want it to be darn close to the last time that i had that beer but what i find interesting about his consistency argument is that it's almost as if he's assuming that a brewery is only going to make one beer you know and if that's the case yes you want that beer to be consistent 
But there's no reason you can't make both a hazy beer and a clear beer. I don't think that's a confusing message to the consumer. Um, oh no, no, also, no, I don't. I don't think that's what. I don't think that's what his point was. I think his point was within a brand. Yeah. You know, oh if, sure. Yeah. You know, you, you've got you know Joe's hazy IPA. Then Joe's hazy IPA had better be Joe's hazy IPA every time, as opposed oh, sure. to Joe's West Coast IPA. Yeah, no, I no, I agree, but there's there's nothing to prevent that brewery from making both Joe's Hazy IPA and Joe's West Coast IPA. But yeah, each one of those then needs to be a consistent product, and that's uh, that's something that that I harp on all the time. If I walk into a bar and I order a pint of my favorite beer from that bar, I want it to be the same as the last time I ordered the pint of beer from that bar. And although I hate to use them as an analogy, it's kind of like the the Holiday Inn or McDonald's experience, uh, except that hopefully it's better quality than either one of those, but it's the consistency, it's the getting what you expect to get that really matters to me. If I uh, walk in and I order a pint of the flagship IPA, and they have totally changed all the hops in that IPA from the last time I had it, uh, I'm going to be disappointed even if it's still a really good beer, because that's not what I wanted. That's not what I ordered. So remember, the takeaway from Charlie's message is quality, consistency, and people. Uh, make quality beer, make it consistent so that it comes out the same every time, and take care of your people, because they are really what your company is. And don't forget to hire them if they're trained, particularly if they come from UC Davis. <laughs> yeah, right. A little vested interest there. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we're going to get out of the library here. We're going to head over to the brewery and spend a few minutes talking about brewing with green hops and uh, what YCH Hops is doing to help brewers do that. So stick around and we'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. <laughs> Okay, well, hey, we're in the brewery. It's time to get brewing. The kettles are steaming. You know, we, we have beer in the air. Malt is in the air. The hops are measured out. And hey, speaking of the hops, it's that time of year. Uh, if you're a hop grower, you know that your hops are just about done. It's getting time to get them uh, off the vine, get them ready to go. But hey, recent trends, because everybody's playing around with their hops, you know, the whole fresh hop thing went from being kind of an obscure thing to something that actually now has well, industry support around it. And so, Denny, you want to tell everybody what YCH is doing this year? Yeah, um, we're just under a month away from the beginning of hop harvest here in the Northwest. Uh, when you hear this episode for the first time, starts right around the beginning of September, end of August. And for a number of years, YCH Hops up in Yakima has been taking orders for and shipping green hops straight out of the field. 
Now, the first thing I got to tell you is that this isn't a homebrewer kind of thing, unfortunately. Uh, because of the way it works, uh, they have to pick these hops, package them up, and ship them out immediately to orders that have been pre-placed for a specific amount of hops. Obviously, that means your local homebrew shop isn't going to be able to order a bunch of these wet hops and sell them to you because they can't keep them in stock, right? They'll dry out. Hops are very volatile when they're fresh and uh, can start composting themselves in as little as an hour. So you need to get them and brew with them right away. So uh, the orders from YCH are pretty much limited to commercial breweries. That said, what they're doing this year is that they will have varieties including Cascade, Citra, Equinot, Mosaic, Simcoe, and for the first time, they're going to have Laurel hops as wet hops. Uh, this is a kind of a new variety to me. I have some uh, in the freezer ready to go, but I have not brewed with them yet so that I don't know about them. The other ones, Cascade, Citra, Equinot, Mosaic, and Simcoe, are pretty much hops that we all know well. The interesting thing also is that uh, YCH has put out a video on their website about a brewery by the name of Three Magnets Brewing with Wet Hops. So if you want a little info on brewing with your own wet hops, whether you grow them, you get them some you get them from someplace else as a home brewer. Um, there's a, a really cool and interesting video on the YCH website that we'll post a link to about three magnets brewing with these green hops that they get. And having been at Hop and Brew School up, in, uh, up at YCH when the hop harvest is going on, I can tell you that right at the beginning, there, there is just a flurry of activity to harvest these hops. And once they uh, go through the separator to pull the hops and leaves off the binds and separate the hops from leaves, these hops go into boxes and get out of there very quickly on their way to the brewers who are going to use them. Oh, I know. I mean, they, they ship them out looking at the order form. Yeah, you have no choice other than next day. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and again, it's because fresh hops are very volatile and you want to get them and get them into your beer as soon as possible. Now, uh, who, what, is, yeah. what is curious to me is I know in the past there have been a couple of places where you could order as a home brewer uh, fresh hops, not necessarily from YCH, but you could get fresh wet hops. And obviously there's a whole art to making a wet hop beer. But the interesting part is looking at that order form on YCH, you know, their hop uh, their hop allotments are in 10 pound sacks for right. fresh hops. So, yeah, and they're 550 a pound, which means I'm wondering if you couldn't get like, you know, a couple of homebrews together and get uh, get a couple of boxes, like get a homebrew club together. I know they're focusing on the commercial aspect, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I would assume you would have to like set up some sort of commercial account with YCH. Uh, I would say that probably uh, if you, if you have a homebrew store that goes through a wholesaler, who does business with YCH, and we know that our sponsor, Brewcraft, is one of those, um, then maybe you could ask your homebrew store to inquire with their wholesaler if they might be able to get their hands on some for you and split it up. You have to hurry because the final orders are due in by August 18th. Yeah. And 
Now, Denny, have you ever brewed a fresh hop beer? Uh, I have a couple times. I, uh, for many years, kept a Cascade plant in, in my backyard. Uh, I had one plant. Uh, it finally got to the point where I would get over 20 pounds of wet hops off of that one plant in a year. It got to not be worth my time <laughs> to uh, to dry and package all those hops and use them. But I did brew a wet hop beer a couple times with some of the hops up off of there, and it was it was okay it was uh, for my taste it was more of a curiosity and because i can thing than a wow wow that's a really good beer um i've had a couple commercial wet hop beers and they have varied greatly in quality a couple of them have been excellent and a couple of them have been oh that tastes like chlorophyll well so then that begs the question of hey listeners do you have a local brewery or brewer that you know who does a great wet hop beer? If you do, let us know, because I think we want to steal some tips and tricks from those people, because there always seems to be a bit of a, well, a, a bit of a debate around wet hop beers or fresh hop beers or however you want to call them, where some people absolutely love them because of the sort of rich character to them. Some of them hate them for the the overwhelming greenness that so many of them seem to have. So if you know of somebody who makes a great wet hot beer and you want us to talk to them, uh, let us know. You know, you know how to reach or us if, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you grow your own hops and you've made a wet hop beer, let us know how it did turn out. What kind of hops did you use? How did you use them? I think guess about the only tip that I can give, and it's pretty well known, is that you want to use four to five times as much wet hops as you would dried hops to get the uh, the equivalent effect. Uh, of course, that adds a lot more vegetal matter and a lot more chlorophyll to your beer. Some people like that. Some people somehow seem to hide that in the beer, and I don't know how they do that. So anyway, tell us your wet hop beer experiences and uh, if you're growing your own and making your own wet hop beer. All right, there we go. Next segment. Next segment, indeed. I guess we're on to the lounge where I'm going to tell you all about my recent trip to Chile. Stick around. We're going to be right back in just a minute. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. beer. Alright, we've left the library. We've left the brewery. We've been in the pub. You know what time it is. It's time for us to get loungy. Lounging. Put, put on your favorite leisure suit. <laughs> Hey, I don't have one of those anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Not surprising you had one of them. I'm I'm not sure I ever did, actually. (laughs) Speaking of things I've never done, like own a leisure suit, I've never been to Chile. However, that's changed now. Denny, you've been to Chile. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about it? I I just returned from a trip to Santiago, Chile. Uh, I was invited down to judge and speak at the second South American Homebrew Cup. Uh, my understanding is that uh, this moves from country to country every year. It's kind of like our NHC, except uh, instead of being national, it's international and covers the entire continent of South America. Uh, when I was there, there were brewers and beers from, uh, of course, Chile, 
uh, Peru, Argentina, Uruguay, and Colombia, or um, excuse me, Brazil. There may have been something there from Colombia, and I missed it. But those were those were the countries that uh, I saw mainly represented. The Chile Brewers, uh, which is pretty much the equivalent of the AHA for Chile, invited me down for this event. And, you know, it's like a trip to Chile. What are you going to say? So, of course, I said yes. Uh, it's a long flight, not quite as long as the flight we took to uh, Brazil a couple years ago. So, you know, well, that's because the trip that we took to Brazil last year actually bounced through Santiago <laughs> yeah. and then up to Brazil. Yeah, that's right. We had a we had like a, a two or three a.m. layover in Santiago, and uh, it it's it's a weird place to be that early in the morning. But man, it's uh, it's a lot more happening when you're there when the airport is actually opening. Yeah, less volcano explosions. I'm hoping. Yeah, the, while there you was were there. no volcano this time, so uh, you know that that was not an issue. Uh, there was a beautiful view of the Andes, though. So anyway, after after an overnight flight lasting, oh, I guess the entire experience was about twenty hours. Uh, I arrived in Chile. Uh, was picked up by uh, Valeria Mina, who took me to the hotel. She was the competition organizer and uh, pretty much one of the directors of the whole conference. Uh, stopped by the hotel. Met a couple guys. Actually, met three guys from Argentina: uh, Ricardo, Hector, and Jose, my new adopted son. So I spent the rest of the day uh, recovering, sleeping, eating room service, going to bed early. Got up early the next morning and uh, headed off to the competition, which is held at uh, Universidad Manuel Mont, uh, a fairly newish business college in uh, one of the nicer downtown sections of Santiago. So anyway, we get to the uh, competition Thursday morning, and those of you out there who are, are Igors will appreciate the fact that the first guy I was introduced to was a gentleman I ended up judging with whose name was Igor. I gave him I gave him one of the Igor pins. Uh, he seemed to really appreciate uh, the pin and the irony of the whole thing. Met a bunch of other great guys. Uh, Chris Flaskamp, who I mentioned earlier, the owner of the Tubingo Brewery. Uh, Ricardo, Jose, and Hector, the Argentine guys I'd met the day before were there. Met some of the competition organizers, a gentleman by the name of Francisco, who is uh, uh, Valeria's kind of like right-hand man in running the whole competition. Um, and we went in and sat down to judge. Uh, they told me that I was going to be judging fruit and wheat beers, and anyone who's followed me through the years knows that those aren't exactly my favorite styles. But, you know, when in Chile, <laughs> do what you're asked to do. And the, uh, the thing that was really cool is that, as we had discovered when we went to Brazil, there is an entire world of fruits and vegetables and things like that in South America that we either seldom see or have no idea of up here. So uh, we sat down to uh, to judge, had a great steward, and I, I his name totally eludes me right at the moment, but uh, if you're listening... I'm sorry, I forgot your name, but you did a you did a killer killer job. So we dove into the beers, had some very interesting beers. Uh, one of which uh, was a beer that was made with 58 
percent blue corn and had some purple corn you got the whole recipe there right what else is in it yeah well hold on before we talk about this though i want to make a very good point it's you just you just gave me the rough description of it said oh hey you know that sounds like uh the idea i had for chicha morita yes and uh chicha morita beer or chicha morita if you don't know it's not chicha as in like the chicha beer that we think of it's a sort of a purple bluish corn sweet drink and very, very popular in, I think, uh, uh, Peru and other parts of South America. And so I said, oh, that sounds like a Chicha Maria beer. And what did you say? I said, no, I don't think so. I think it's just a blue corn beer. Because, of course, I was thinking of the Chicha, which is fermented with saliva. And I was pretty sure this one wasn't. Yeah. And so Denny sent me a file. It's in Beersmith. And Denny can't open those because he's old school and has uh, Pro Mash. And I open it up. And, and, gee, what's the title of the beer? Chicha Morita, number six. Okay, so Drew's proud of himself because he got it right. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was a it was a very very interesting beer, and I put beer in quotation marks. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet the gentleman who brewed it the next day, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about well, that. Well, I mean, looking looking at the beer itself, I mean, it's still you know mostly a beer. It's about you know uh, for. A six and a half gallon batch, it's about four and a half pounds of blue corn and uh, two or three pounds of purple corn, and then about four and a half pounds each of Pilsner and wheat malt with mosaic and zythos hops and a little uh, 50 grams of passion fruit added to the secondary. Right, exactly. Um, and I had the, the uh, opportunity to try it both with and without the passion fruit. And to tell you the truth, uh, pretty much unanimously, the version without the passion fruit that we tried the next day uh, was preferred, in, including by the brewer. But it was a it was a very interesting beer. It came off light and refreshing, but it didn't really come off a, as a beer you know down in the the i mean especially like a a fruit or wheat beer which was the category it was entered into and in in the box at the bottom of the score sheet where you have to mark you know stylistic accuracy and all that kind of stuff i just put a big question mark because i didn't know exactly what style it was going for Uh, another one of the beers that we tried that day uh, was a Berliner Weiss that was made with both dragon fruit and guava. Now, if you've ever had dragon fruit, you know that it doesn't have a whole lot of flavor to it on its own. But boy, did it give that beer the most beautiful purple color uh, that I think I've ever seen in a beer. And we'll we'll post a picture of that one so that you can see it. So uh, that night there was... Uh, an event at the brew pub where chili brewers were going to introduce the beer that they had made for the event, a, uh, a fruit beer or a wheat beer actually with fruit in it. Uh, I was still kind of like really zoned out from the trip. So I didn't make that event, headed back to the hotel and headed back Friday morning for judging. And we just kind of finished up the round. We uh, had a few more uh, wheat beers with fruit and we had one American IPA. And this this was a thing that took me just a minute to figure out. Uh, down in South America, they seem to pronounce IPA as a word rather than as the initials like we do here. But uh, So they actually treat it as a word, not an initialism. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, there were a number of American IPAs in the, uh, in the competition. Uh, there was no de- any, any any deepas. <laughs> uh, not the any deepas. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, how about I didn't run across any. How about a tipa? No, no, I didn't. I didn't see any tipas either. Uh, Sipa. <laughs> uh, Sipa. 
So we're up to like what? What is that now? Seven? Uh, no. Um, basically, you know, when the beer was put down in front of me and I took one whiff of it, it was obvious that uh, what what it really was, and so it kind of made up for my my lack of experience in the terminology. And then that afternoon, after we finished lunch, eleven of us hopped in two very small vehicles and headed out to the Tubinger Brewery run by Chris Flaskamp, the guy who who made the beer I was drinking back in the pub. Chris is a uh, a Brazilian German guy who learned to brew in Germany, uh, moved back to Chile and opened a brewery there. And we had a great afternoon out at the brewery. Besides the IPA, he makes a few other beers. One of his other uh, big sellers and very popular beers is a beer called Tubinator that is kind of like in the Doppelbach uh, category. He calls it a strong, dark ale, but it tastes a whole lot like a Doppelbach made with ale yeast. Very, very good beers. It's a very traditional German system where uh, after the mash is done, they pump the mash over to a louder ton that drains by gravity into a grant directly below it. Meanwhile, the mash ton is cleaned out, and when that's done, the wort is pumped back to it. It's brought to a boil there, and when the boil is done, it gets pumped down to a whirlpool at the far end of the brew house. Quite a bit of travel. And Chris was saying it's a very inefficient system because it's all electric and it's very slow to heat work to a boil and it consequently limits their production because they can't do more than two batches a day. So they are having a system twice that size built and, uh, it's going to be heated by steam, uh, gas-powered steam generators, so the uh, the vessels will be steam-jacketed. Uh, he's got a, a dozen fermenters there, uh, a little bottling line that goes at the speed of light, practically. Um, so before we go on anymore, let's just uh, let's stop for a minute here and listen to the interview that I did with Chris. And... My apologies for the audio quality. I hadn't been expecting all this to happen, so I just kind of had to record it on my phone. The first part was done in a moving car, but, uh, you know, concentrate on the information and, uh, and not the sound quality. And it's, it's really interesting to hear how you set up a very small brewery that becomes one of the biggest brewers in a country where there are a lot of obstacles. So uh, let's listen. We'll be back in about 10 minutes. Hey everybody, this is Denny. I am here in a crowded truck uh, in the crowded streets of Santiago, Chile, and we are on our way to a brewery owned by my new friend Chris. So Chris, introduce yourself to people. Hi everybody, I'm Chris Flaskamp. Uh, I'm a German, half Brazilian, living in Chile for 27 years, and I uh, am the founder co-founder and director of uh, Tübinger Craft Beer, which we opened 10 years ago in Santiago. We're actually driving out there now. And uh, you said it's about an hour drive out of Santiago? Yeah, from now it's going to be like 45 minutes to okay. get there. Okay, mm-hmm. great. Seems like everything around Santiago is an hour away. No, no, no. <laughs> that, that would be Sao Paulo. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
No, it's not that bad. It's, it's just that it's, it's outside of the city, you know. It's in the outskirts, right. like 30 miles outside. And we're going to drive through very beautiful scenery. And it, it's a very nice spot that we found there. And you said you started as a home brewer about 20 years ago? Yeah, that's right. And the end of the 90s, I was one of the first home brewers in, in this country. There were no homebrew kits or anything, so I had to do everything myself. I was brewing my first batches with bread yeast. <laughs> so it tasted nice and bready. <laughs> do you remember what the first beer you ever brewed was? I do, actually. It was a British bitter, and it actually came out really nice. That, I was so surprised. <laughs> the second one I brewed was, it was absolutely terrible. It was a, it was a stout, and I, and I actually thought it was going to be great because the first one was good. Yeah. So we had a big party together at the country house of my sisters, and I opened the bottle and it all gushed all over us. <laughs> Never a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps you humble, though, right? Absolutely, and uh, and it taught, taught me that uh, I was probably lucky with the first one, and uh, I just had to uh, keep on working on them. But uh, after like five years, uh, I got better and better at it, so... So, that's nice. where did you get ingredients back then, and what kind of ingredients were you using? Well, I was actually yeah, uh, lucky that I, I was good friends with a, with a certified brewmaster, also a German guy who lived here and was also brewing with a uh, medium-small brewery, and he actually got me all the, all the ingredients. Oh, great. So he was importing stuff? and He was importing some of the hops, and he was getting uh, the malt from the local molsters. Uh, which, as a small home brewer, you were not a you. Were, it was impossible to do. Right. But you would just buy some more for me, and he would actually also mill it for me. So that that was lucky. Right now we have like three or four, uh, let's say, home brew stores with brew kits. So it's much easier now. Yeah, mm. I would imagine so. Yeah. So how long did you homebrew before you started the brewery? I would say five or six years. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. And what? What made you want to start the brewery? Just being crazy? Yes. <laughs> no, I, I, actually, I, I, it was never my intention to to do go commercial and then start start selling it uh, because I had a pretty steady job at the university. But uh, it bugged me that uh, after a few years there was a bit of a let's say craft beer boom here in Chile, uh -huh. and I saw loads of guys that I knew, some that I didn't knew, know, uh, who were actually starting their own brewery uh, without knowing anything, just uh, by learning something on the internet, and the beer wasn't really coming out very nicely. And, I, and it just bugged me, and I said, well, if they can do it, I can do it <laughs> myself. So I, I, and I gave it a try. Uh, while I was still working, I, I, I did, uh, with another friend of mine, we, bought, we started brewing on a uh, one-and-a-half-barrel system, and became very successful from the beginning. So, oh, that's that's great. So, unlike most home brewers, you never went through the phase of starting with extract and all that kind of stuff. I never did that, actually. No, well, that's, that's probably just as well. Because we there was no, there was no extract. <laughs> no, it was always all malt. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and are all the hops imported? Do you guys grow any hops down here? No, there's very little hop. Uh, uh, growing in, in Chile, in the south a little bit, but we import everything from from Germany and the States. Right. And now from New Zealand as well. So tell me a little bit about your brewery now. Oh, well, you're going to see it in a while. Um, it's a 20 hectoliter batch system. Right. And we're 
Uh, we have a production per month of about 500 hectoliters, 50,000 liters. Wow. We measure everything in, in liters or hectoliters here. Because I don't always have a calculator to calculate the barrels. You know. <laughs> That's what I'm going to have to do. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It's a little less than a barrel, the hectoliter. Okay, great. That's mm -hmm. a, that's a great approximation. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we'll just take a break here and pick it up again when we're there looking at stuff, so sure. asking more stupid questions. So uh, we've made it here to the Tubinger Brewery. We're sitting outside at a picnic table with a gorgeous view of the mountains around us. It is astounding. Uh, yeah, let's say cheers first. Cheers! cheers. <laughs> we uh, just uh, had a uh, really nice American-style pale ale made with Waimea hops, and now we're drinking the delicious IPA. Um, so, Chris, your brewing system is a little bit different than people might have seen before. Can, can you describe it, maybe? I have some pictures here. Uh, right, well, we are just about to get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's not working well for you? Unfortunately, yeah, it was a, a bit of a misinvestment. But we're, we're actually buying a new one from Premium in the United States for next year. Um, this one uh, is has, let's say, had, has, has been okay, but it could have been better. Unfortunately, efficiency is not very good, not very high. And is that because of the, the louder method? You think? The louder is very slow, and also our energy source is, is not very good. It's not very efficient. Right. We are not able to uh, heat the wort uh, fast enough for ah. to be able to do more than two batches a day. Okay. So, so the, wow, that's really, that's got to be a real drawback. Yes. So, basically, you have your mash tun, and then you pump it over to a separate louder tun. That's right. Right? Mm -hmm. And that... Feeds by gravity mm -hmm. into like a grant. Is that what they? No, like a grant, or we call it the waiting tank. Okay. Waiting for, <laughs> then, We're waiting for time. And then we pump it back into the restaurant, which is now the boiling kettle. Okay. After we've cleaned it, and then we boil it in there. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, what was there's a there was a vessel just to the right of your louder tun. I thought maybe that was the boiler. That wasn't the. Boiler. No, that's the whirlpool actually. The whirlpool oh, okay. is separate. Mm -hmm. Okay. So so you go back to the mash tun to boil, and then down to the whirlpool. That's right. To yeah. finish it. Now, that's right. I can see that that might be a bit of a pain in the ass. Well, you know, a lot of Germans do that, like, like yeah. that. Uh, and until up to, I would say, 10-barrel uh, system, 15-barrel uh -huh. system, it's okay to have your, your Lauter in, in, in the mash, mm -hmm. mash and Lauter together. But I think when it's over 20-barrel, it's, it's uh, a bit better to have it separate. Right, mm -hmm. right. And most of the systems that I'm familiar with are in the 20-barrel range and do it mm -hmm. kind of like in the all-in-one theory. Mm -hmm. And how many fermenters do you have in there? Uh, I think it's 12, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, good. I've uh, been brewing lately. We, we, have, we, 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 we just bought three new ones, so now we're up to 12. Okay. Uh -huh. And this, this is your brewmaster here? He's our operations manager. Operations manager. Hello, hello. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is going to be a podcast. We'll be going out worldwide. So, uh, live. Yeah. So behave. <laughs> no, live. No, we don't, we don't do anything live because I have to go back and bleep. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but so, and what was your annual production? Do you think? I would say we're about six hundred thousand liters a uh, a year. Okay, we're aiming for eight hundred thousand this year. Okay, and and you self distribute. You were telling me most of it is self distributed. We've got three trucks coming here every day. Uh, we have a few uh, external uh, dis distributors. But most of it is, is all self, uh, 
self-distributed because we don't have the three-tier system like in the States. Right. Lucky. So that helps a bit. Yeah, yeah. And you said you bottle about 10% and the rest all just goes into kegs? Between 10 and 15%. Okay. Uh, because we we are, we are still more let's say concentrated on the barrel mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. We, we want to raise the bottle production a bit now mm-hmm. and do, do those go like to just general retail places like grocery stores and that kind of thing or mostly retail supermarkets right. chains but we also go to restaurants and pubs and uh, we also have an online web system oh really so- there is a that is one of our external uh, outsourced uh, distributor where we just uh, we, we, we sell it to them and they get all the inquiries over the web so people can actually buy your beer on the internet absolutely uh, all right i don't know if they ship it to the stage yet but uh, <laughs> we might be able to work something out okay. <laughs> i hope that would be nice so. uh so what where do you see tubinger going in say five years or ten years well, hopefully doubling production yeah. uh, within the next uh, two years with the new uh, brewing system that we're buying. And uh, five to ten years, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, got, we've got lots of space here, as you see, which right. we can... You have such a great location. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine that a tap room here could do really well. That's our next stage. We, we still haven't got a tap room. I know that's unthought of in the States, but unfortunately we don't have it yet. But we that's our next uh, aim, really, to... To have a really nice tap room uh, because we get a lot of uh, people coming over on the weekends here. It's a very popular uh, place to visit on the the weekends. It's just just beautiful. And I would imagine all the wineries around here would really draw a lot of people also. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time, man. And thank you for the beer. It's absolutely delicious. Thank you very much, Danny. You betcha. Cheers indeed. That was uh, that was Chris Flaskamp talking about uh, how he got into brewing, how he ended up setting up a uh, brewery in Chile, and like I said, Tubinger is probably one of the leading breweries in the country at this point. What was extremely interesting was hearing how he wants to set up a tap room, and he spent four years trying to overcome the obstacles to that. Beautiful location. We'll put some pictures up at that. We sat there for several hours during the afternoon at a picnic table outside the brewery. Beautiful view of the mountains behind us, uh, drinking some of his amazing beers. Okay, so that evening, there was an event uh, at a brew pub called Mosto, M-O-S-S-T-O, which I later found out means wort. Uh, it was a meeting of the chili brewers and, uh, Chris and I and uh, a couple of the other people who had crammed into these vehicles showed up there a bit early, were treated to some amazingly delicious pizzas, uh, made with spent grain and all kinds of fantastic toppings. But to me, the, the highlight of the pizzas were the sprinkles, you know, you know, like you go get pizza and they have those little like jars of stuff on the table. You can sprinkle on your pizza, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what they had here was ground Munich malt mixed with herbs like, like oregano and garlic and stuff like that. And you sprinkled that on your pizza. And oh my God. Was that good? That sounds straight out of, uh, Sean Paxson's, uh, book. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I've never seen Sean suggest it, but boy, it is certainly something that I would expect from somebody like that. It was a great compliment to like all the different kinds of pizza we tried. You know, it was really, really great. 
Um, had a couple glasses of the conference fruit beer, uh, which was a wheat beer made with uh, blueberries and raspberries, I'm told. I'm trying to get a little bit more information about that right now. Sat there, had several beers, but, you know, I'd had a long day. I'd had a lot of beer to drink and uh, had to give my talk the next day. Headed back to the hotel, got up Saturday morning and headed back to the university where they had uh, reserved this gorgeous wood paneled auditorium for the, uh, the various talks that were going on that day. Also met a gentleman by the name of Garrett Garfield who was there to translate uh, my talk for people. He was uh, an American guy from very, very southern Texas, right on the Mexican border, uh, down there to teach English. Turns out he was the guy who was responsible for the uh, Chicha Morada beer. So we, uh, we talked a bit about that, and Garrett was a very, very interesting guy. He's totally into homebrewing. He lives uh, with his wife and in-laws on his in-laws' agricultural station. And because he has access there to a lab and other stuff, Garrett actually has cultured seven strains of yeast from various local fruits and vegetables. And, you know, I, I do not know if his chicha beer was made with one of his yeasts or not. The... uh he gave me a beer that was made with one, and you know, you'd expected it to kind of be like a funky, tart flavor. It, it was not at all. It was a delicious beer, refreshing, clean, with just maybe a hint of tartness to it. I was blown away that this wild yeast that he had cultured had such an amazing character to it. So uh, Garrett, Garrett had brought a bunch of beers, and uh, it was great because he was so knowledgeable about the chilean culture but able to kind of like relate it to me in an american way so uh we went through uh the the uh, day fortunately most of the people there spoke english well enough so that he didn't have to do too much translation of my talk and afterwards there was a um, a forum where uh, I sat up on stage with uh, Ricardo, one of the Argentine brewers, and Gaston Rivera, who was uh, actually a, one of the uh, speakers at the uh, HBC in Minneapolis this year, where I had a chance to meet him. And we answered questions from the audience. Um, you know, Garrett, fortunately, translating uh, the questions for me. Uh, so we... Uh, so once that got over, uh, we had some time to kill before the awards started. So we tried some of uh, Garrett's beers and meads. He makes mead also and uh, stuff made with his different yeast. Chris had brought some of his homebrew experiments also, not any of his commercial batches, but some of his homebrew experiments, <laughs> including a uh, a coffee beer that was really a coffee beer. I mean, wow. Uh, he told me that when he entered it in the competition, he got dinged for it being too much like coffee. But me being a black uh, coffee freak, I loved it. So, Saturday night was the awards. It was at a uh, brew pub called Roberto Spo, S-P-O-H. Uh, it was... I mean, I was ready to party by the time we got there. Uh, a very tiny place, uh, looking a little, well, you've seen the pictures. What would you call it? Industrial? 
Like, okay, bare plywood walls, bare concrete walls with paint on them, a little brewery in the back. I, I would guess no more than seven barrels, but maybe not even that much. And this great, great two-piece band that was so good. Uh, guy playing keyboards, guy playing cajon, they both sang. There is a... Uh, a picture of me floating around the internet and I was actually dancing. And that is yeah, a very it's, scary. Yeah, it's a dancing with big old quotation marks around yeah, it. Yeah, right. It's a, it's a, it's a very, almost a hippie noodle dance. Yeah. It's a very scary thing, but it's probably about the closest I've ever come to dancing in my entire life. Uh, you know, I, I just have never been able to do that. So the awards were held there. Uh, we drank a lot of beer. They had uh, some food vendors there. The awards were a lot of fun, a lot of very happy people. But it was, it was a great way to finish off the entire trip. Uh, we had some great beers there and during the competition. And even the ones that weren't great were at least very, very interesting to learn about. When somebody invites you to go to a faraway place that you've never been before and it might be kind of scary, just do it, you know, just go. And Chile is a, was a wonderful experience. Uh, I made so many Dear new friends, and I would be back there in an instant if asked again. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. The tra uh, the travel aspect is fun, and of course, I have to laugh at the fact that you know, before a couple of years ago, you had never really left the U.S. No. or at least North America, right. and now you've been to Brazil and Chile. Where can, where else can homebrew take us? Uh, yeah, well, Hopefully lots of places. Yeah, exactly. We have uh, a couple other international trips coming up here that uh, I'm not at liberty to speak about right now. But believe me, uh, other than than the flying part, I have learned to just love these things. And the other thing that I've learned is that a 767 300 has seats that are made of concrete with a quarter inch of foam on them, and your butt will go numb after about an hour of a 10-hour flight. Well, okay, so now, you obviously, you had a lot of fun, you got to talk, you got to see a lot of this stuff at a conference, but, well, tell me, I mean, you know, for us being, you know, grubby little Americans, what's different about the homebrewing scene down there in Chile? You know, like, what are their challenges, or what are they doing? Yeah, well, um... It's very interesting. Uh, obviously, ingredients are a challenge for home brewers as well as commercial brewers. Malt, not so much. They have uh, Patagonia malt, which is made down there and, and is really an excellent malt. I got to uh, taste some right out of the bag at Tubinger, and uh, it was it was very tasty malt. They also have things like wiremen and stuff like that. So they malt's pretty good. Hops are an issue for them uh, because they're a long ways away. And I guess maybe in southern Chile, down around the 45th parallel, they are starting to grow a, a little bit of hops down there, uh, kind of comparable to the 45th parallel here where, the, uh, where there's a lot of hop growing. But there's really not much going on yet, not much in the way of processing facilities or anything like that. That. Yeast is almost exclusively dry yeast, uh, both for uh, breweries like Tubinger and for home brewers. Uh, lots and lots of US05. There was a uh, Lollamond exhibit at the um, at the conference, and it appears that there is now like at least one Chilean company starting to get into liquid yeast. I 
believe the name was like Katya, something like that, K-A-T-Y-A. Uh, I want any people down there write in and correct me and tell me more about this company because uh, I didn't have a chance to talk to them. Uh, Equipment-wise, it's a lot like the U.S., or in general, a kind of like cobbled-together system of kettles and pots and pans. I did talk to a couple people who were using coolers. But one of the more interesting things that I found was that for many, 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 maybe a majority of the Chilean homebrewers, the goal is to use this to go ahead and open a commercial brewery. Homebrewing is not as much an end in itself down there as it is up here. It's more a way to um, get yourself in a position where you can make some money. That said, the one big similarity I found is the the camaraderie and friendship of homebrewers. You know, all around the world where I've gone or met homebrewers from other parts of the world, we have like this common love of beer. We have this common love of making it ourselves. And that really uh, overcomes a, a lot of the language barriers and other things like that. Well, now, touching back on the pro-brewing thing, yeah. is it easier for somebody to go from home-brewing to pro-brewing in Chile? Is it like, you know, a lot of people talk about, like, all the owner's restrictions and the hoops that you have to jump through to get federal approval and state approval and city approval. I mean, is it a little different down there, do you think? Um, my impression is that it is, although I don't, you know, I don't have specific examples of that. Um, I know that there are quite a number of home brewers down there who kind of seem to be selling beer on the side. So, you know, um, obviously it's not strictly legal, but they do it anyway. Chris had mentioned that he's been trying to get a tap room open. And, you know, where he is would be a great place to have a tap room. He is right down the road from Concha y Toro, which is the world's second largest winery in this beautiful area that is apparently just overrun with tourists every weekend. So a tap room at his brewery would be a great thing, but he spent four years trying to deal with the regulations to get one, hoping that it's going to be there soon, but it's not there yet. <laughs> so easy to get the brewery, hard to get the that's tap my, room. And that's my impression, you. yeah. Well, and I'll tell you that uh, having spent a lot of time exploring wine country, like here in California, you know, after a long day of wine tasting, nothing beats a nice cold beer. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, there's the old saying, it takes a lot of good beer to make great wine, so. Which, oddly enough, you can hear in episode 14 and 15 of How the about Files. that? Uh, yeah. So, it, anyway, right. there's a rather lengthy recap of my trip to Chile. I hope uh, that you're still awake if you're out there, uh, and I hope that maybe uh, you'll have a chance to visit that great country sometime and meet some homebrewers and taste some great beers. Yeah, well, I was going to say, one thing that did crack me up in all your photos that you sent uh, on the web to us from Chile was the beard ratio on the men <laughs> was absolutely the same as the beard ratio on homebrewers. Yeah, right, man. That's that's one real similarity, and uh, it's great. One of the perks they had for the judges during the competition was this great barber set up outside the judging room so you could get, like, uh, beard trims and haircuts and stuff like that while you were judging. And I was thinking, man, I've seen some great judge gifts before, but this may be the best. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I I would have paid good money to see you have shaved off the beard and come home to your wife. No, I uh, the beard came off once about uh, eight years ago, and it will never happen again, believe me. Uh, but I did get a very nice trim that she appreciated. There you go. All right. Well, hey, enough about trims. Enough about chili. Let's get uh, let's get the show on. Yeah, the road. time to move on to the uh, final segments of the show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with all that ending stuff that we always do. So stick around. All right. Well, hey, so you guys know that every 12 episodes we do a Q&A show, right? Right. You I knew that. Well, I knew that. Yeah, well, I hope you know. All right. Well, and that means this is episode 46, which means we have two more episodes until we get to a multiple of 12, 48, which means that you have one month to get your questions into us at podcastexperimentalbrew.com or call and leave us voicemail at 626-765-1AL. Remember, if you give us a little more time, we might be able to actually come up with better answers. So, Get those questions in so that we can have some fun answering them, maybe. <laughs> but that's the Q&A for, for this part of the episode. But, Denny, you have a quick tip for us, don't you? Yeah, and this quick tip is really quick, and it's one that I'm surprised more people haven't uh, thought about. When you enter a beer in a competition, save an extra bottle or two to drink while you read the score sheets after the competition. A lot of times, uh, you know, if you don't have that beer and you're just kind of like reading through the score sheets, your memory of the beer may not be quite as accurate as you think it was. You may disagree with the judge's comments. You may have a hard time understanding what they're talking about. If you have set aside a couple bottles of that beer and you drink them as you read the judge's comments on your score sheet, it helps you understand what they're saying. It helps you maybe learn about some of the flavors they're talking about in your beer maybe something you totally overlooked but when you're drinking that beer reading what they're saying you can pick it up so remember don't drink it all save a couple for yourself for when you get those score sheets back and besides if you do read the score sheet and drink the beer at the same time and the judges are wrong you have extra proof in your mind that those stupid judges don't know anything. I'm right. My beer is awesome. Yeah, or maybe you have proof that uh, the judges were right and you don't know what you're talking about. Whoever's going to accept that, you don't know humanity very well. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, something other than beer this week. Yeah, uh, two quick ones. Uh, the first one is something that's returning. Uh, you guys remember in last year's episodes, I talked about Alice in Paris on YouTube on the Taste Made channel. Well, that had a nice long season one, but it's been on hiatus. But they just released the trailer for season two, and I'm so excited. If you don't know, Alice in Paris is these really kind of cool t weekly series, two to four minutes long of this girl named Alice. I think her actual name is Elise. Uh, Elise exploring Paris and very whimsical and very charming. So totally go watch those because they're back. And the other one's something new. So this one's not on YouTube. It's on the, my other favorite thing to do, which is podcast. So there's this podcaster by the name of Jesse Thorne. And Jesse Thorne is one of the chief people behind the Maximum Fun Podcast Network. So he has a ton of podcasts. And he also appears on NPR and does a whole bunch of things. He launched a new series in association with the 
Columbia Journal, uh, or sorry, the Columbia Review of Journalism. And he, it's called The Turnaround. And the idea is that he is sitting down and turning the whole tables around on famous interviewers and talking to them about exactly what do they do when they're interviewing? Why are they good at what they do? What their goals are when they go talk to somebody? And so far on the show, he's had people like uh, Ira Glass, Errol Morris, uh, Jerry Springer, who actually uh, was kind of funny to listen to, uh, Larry King, uh, and Combat Jack, and uh, Anna Sale, and I mean, just the list goes on and on. If you've heard any number of podcasts or any number of interview shows, you've probably heard interviews from these people. And it's really cool to let them dig into their process and sort of hopefully maybe pick up some tips and tricks. Even if you're not an interviewer, it's useful for, you know, you know, that dreadful small talk thing. <laughs> you know, it's a great concept and I've heard great reviews of that show. So I'm definitely going to check that one out. Yeah, I totally, uh, totally suggested uh, the turnaround with Jesse Thorne. And like I said, uh, Alice in Paris is back for season two. Cool. Cool. Well, I guess we've about uh, killed all our time, huh? Something like that. You want to you want to close down this slideshow and get back sure, to sure. Let's do. Thank you all for listening to the experimental brewing podcast and putting up with my extended uh, travel log story. Yeah, it was just missing the Rolodex. That's of right. You can. <laughs> You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, I hang out on pretty much most of the homebrewing forums out there. You can find Drew on the Reddit homebrewing forum and uh, also the Slack homebrewing, uh, whatever it is. Uh channel <laughs> channel thank you see i'm getting smarter all the time hey, and don't forget that if you want to ask us a question suggest topics or recipes or experiments you can always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or if you want to email each one of us individually i'm denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's drew at experimental brew so until next time remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky and we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.